Good morning, church. Last week, we turned back in the Gospel of Matthew to the genealogy, which was a lot of fun, right? To read through all of those names and discuss what was actually going on because we had, we had postponed our study of the genealogy as we went through Advent, which was also a lot of fun. But <clears throat> as we move forward, it's important that we remember what Matthew set up for us in that genealogy. Remember, that's kind of the, the top, the title of the book is the very first sentence of the Gospel of Matthew. And in the genealogy, he specifically told us that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. The son of David and the son of Abraham. He's the king, and he fulfills every promise. And the key word to the Gospel of Matthew, as a reminder, so write this down if you haven't, is fulfillment. The key word for the Gospel of Matthew is fulfillment. Matthew's constantly showing us at every place and in every angle how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Matthew presents us with Emmanuel, God with us, God's presence like he was with Israel. Jesus is the continuation of God's revelation. He's the fulfillment of God's revelation, and he is the highest point of God's revelation. In our section of scripture this week, brings that out quite a bit. It's heavy, so just a heads up, there's some heavy stuff in our text this week. Heavy uh, emotionally, maybe for some. Heavy theologically, some things that we're going to have to dig into. <clears throat> but the Lord has something to say to us, right? Amen? The Lord has something to say to us this morning. So let's pray and ready our hearts to hear the word. Lord, now as we come to your word, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would open our hearts and make us ready to receive it and align our lives with it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we're able. Read Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13, going to verse 23. Matthew 2, 13 through 23, this is the word of the Lord. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two, two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life were dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called 
a Nazarene. Please be seated. There is a lot going on in this story, both in the story itself and behind the scenes. So we're going to tackle each one of those as they come. First, the immediate story. Let's back up a little bit back to chapter 1. Matthew starts the story of Jesus' birth and infancy there, and he, he tells us of a man named Joseph who was engaged to a woman named Mary. And Joseph was going to call off their engagement because Mary was found to be with child. But an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and told him that Mary was pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit and that she would give birth to the Savior of humanity. This was quite the revelation for Joseph. The angel also told him to go ahead and get married to her and name the child Jesus. And by naming Jesus, you'll recall, Joseph would be adopting Jesus into his family. And by extension, adopting Jesus into the royal line of David, which we learned about in the genealogy. Now, at the same time, God was leading these magi, these wise men from the east, by an astronomical sign to come down to Jerusalem, where they sought a newborn king. And they asked the current king where the newborn king was so that they could go and worship him. And Herod uh, confirms with the scribes and Pharisees in Jerusalem where this king was supposed to be born, the Messiah. And he points them in the direction of Bethlehem. The star goes before them and settles over the house of Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. And they go in and they worship this new king. The Magi declare him in their worship and in their gifts to both be God and King. Before this, Herod asked them that they might return so that he too could worship Jesus. Mm-hmm. But instead of returning to Herod, the Magi returned to their homeland by another route. And because they were warned by God in a, in a dream not to return to Herod. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 13. Matthew brings us back to that little house in Bethlehem where Mary and Joseph are sleeping. It's nighttime. All is quiet. And for a second time, the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph. And he tells him, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And so, middle of the night, immediately Joseph leaps out of bed, throws their meager belongings, including those extravagant gifts, into some sack. He grabs his wife, he gets his child, and he heads out in the night toward Egypt. He doesn't waste any time obeying what the Lord commands. So if Joseph is good at anything, it's listening and acting quickly. And it's very covert. Notice that. Use your imagination here. We can, also, we, we can almost picture them dressing in their darkest clothes, being as quiet as possible, making sure nobody sees them. It's all very hush-hush, right? very quiet. Can you imagine how Mary felt being woken up in the middle of the night by Joseph, maybe even him accidentally waking up the baby, causing Jesus to cry. 
And she's told that they have to flee at that moment for Egypt, a place neither of them have ever been. Can you imagine the fear, what she might have felt then? The uncertainty? It was only Joseph that had the dream. But that's what they do. They leave for Egypt at the drop of a hat, and they more or less get off the grid. They disappear. Okay, why Egypt? Why does, why does God tell them to go to Egypt? Well, we'll talk about the larger overarching reasons in a bit. But why not go back to Nazareth? Right? Luke tells us that's where they're originally from. At the time, if they went to Nazareth, they wouldn't have been able to escape Herod's reach. Unlike his sons who came after him, his influence extended through all of Israel. Okay? So if they went back home, back to Nazareth, they would still be in danger. It was not a big deal for Herod to track down a poor couple traveling north, maybe by donkey. Okay, so God tells Joseph to go to a place beyond Herod's reach. And Egypt makes a lot of sense for that. Remember, the whole Western world at this time was conquered by Rome. So gone are the days of pharaohs and pyramid building. Rome has conquered Egypt as well. In fact, it's a major intellectual hub for Rome. It's a major place. Uh, there was a big city there called Alexandria. And it was one of the most modern cities in civilization at the time. In centuries to come, Alexandria would become a hub of a certain brand of intellectual Christianity that would thrive for hundreds of years. And many of our greatest church fathers came from Egypt and North Africa. But before it became a bright hub of Christianity, Alexandria was home to a very large Jewish population. In about a week to 10 days, 150 to 160 mile journey, Mary and Joseph could be in this huge Roman city and feel at home. We aren't told that they go to Alexandria, but that's the big city in Egypt at the time where a bunch of Jews already lived. So it makes sense that they went there. And it's easy to believe that Jesus or Joseph on getting there, sets up a carpenter trade and finds clients and makes a life for himself with his young family. And so they hunker down. They wait. And we're told that they wait until the time of the death of Herod. And then the scene, the story, shifts to Herod. And in this section, 16 through 18, we find one of the worst atrocities recorded in the scriptures. The Magi don't return to Herod. They were warned not to go back in a dream. And Herod feels like he has been played. He feels tricked. And that sends him into a rage. In his fury and in his wrath, Herod has every boy under two years of age in and around Bethlehem killed. It's hard to imagine that kind of loss. We can't really fathom that, fathom that happening in our society. It makes me sick to think about it, being a father of a three-year-old. Herod is so paranoid and so filled with contempt that he is willing to kill innocent 
babies in order to remain king. In this scene, we see the length that our enemy, Satan, is willing to go to in order to destroy the Son of God. And he's still willing to go to these lengths, by the way, to destroy the message of the gospel. Life does not matter to him. He has no compassion. He has no sympathy for the vulnerable. He will go to any length to stop the power of the kingdom of heaven, up to and including influencing powerful leaders like Herod to commit horrendous atrocities. That's the world we live in. That's the power of Satan. Matthew takes a beat and lets his readers mourn. He lets us mourn with the mothers and families who lost their little boys in Bethlehem. It's good that we do that. He quotes quotes the prophet uh, Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. It's a fitting verse for a horrible situation. It's traditionally held that Rachel was buried just outside Bethlehem. Rachel, who Jeremiah pictures as the archetypal mother of the nation of Israel, weeps for her children. And in Jeremiah 31, the immediate context is that she is weeping over her sons who are being sent into exile. And now the mothers of Bethlehem are being closely tied to, are being associated with the weeping of Rachel. Matthew sees this as a greater fulfillment of that statement in Jeremiah 31. And perhaps Matthew wants the reader, especially those who can understand the pain of the mothers in Bethlehem, to turn to Jeremiah 31 and read the next few verses. Especially Jeremiah 31, 17, which says, There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Matthew's a brilliant author. He knows what he's doing. He quotes a portion of Jeremiah that validates and allows room for the suffering and mourning of the mothers and families in Bethlehem. That allows us to come in and mourn and weep with them. But also points to a scripture that has hope. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Those are difficult words to hear in the midst of pain. But Jesus, the baby who survived, is the ultimate hope for all who trust in him. As Christians, there will be times in our lives where Mourning and weeping is the right response to what is happening around us. Maybe that is you this morning. Maybe you are in a time of mourning and weeping. Or maybe you should be, but you're not letting yourself be. There is room for that. And yet, we never lose that thread of hope that is connected with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? He conquered death, and he will return to make all things new. So I ask you again, amen? Amen. That's the good news. That is our hope. 
Now, there are some scholars who question the authenticity of this event. Of course, there are many so-called biblical scholars who do not believe that the Bible is a trustworthy source of history, which I think is ridiculous. But it's true that no other source concurrent with the Bible recorded the slaying of the innocent boys in Bethlehem. That is true. But the only other source for events around this time was one historian named Josephus. It's not like there were hundreds of guys writing detailed histories of, and books at the time about Bethlehem and Jerusalem. And while this is a horrible atrocity, one worth mourning over, Bethlehem was a small town. Based upon the population, the number of baby boys likely killed is maybe 20. Still horrible, awful. We cannot fathom Herod or any leader that we have doing something like this. But we shouldn't be surprised that a man who is well known for his atrocities didn't have a minor one recorded. After all, Herod killed a lot of people, a lot of people, over and over again, dozens at a time. In one instance, he had uh, 30 or 40 of his political adversaries killed in the same day. He had two of his own sons by the same wife killed because she was of the wrong family. And get this, knowing that the nation would not mourn his death because they hated him, Herod gathered all of the prominent Jewish families to his massive palace while he was on his deathbed so that when he died, those dozens of people would be killed at the same time, ensuring that all of Israel would actually mourn. That's Herod. And when he died, those families were spared by the palace guards. Praise the Lord's because they didn't want to kill innocent people. Herod was a bad guy. Herod was a bad ruler. He deserved what he received from God. It was sickness that ended up killing him. He was very paranoid that somebody would take his life by assassination or by poison or whatever, but God killed him before his prime. It was illness. Uh, an, an unknown illness that they didn't know how to treat. Verse 19 tells us that when Herod died, another angel appears to Joseph to head back to the land of Israel. Herod and his assassins were no longer hunting for the boy. A new king was reigning. In fact, three new kings were reigning. When Herod died, his kingdom was split up between his three sons, Archelaus ruled over Judea, where Jerusalem and Bethlehem were. Antipas ruled over Galilee, where Nazareth is. And Philip ruled over Trachantus, or the far north of Israel. Now, we know from the Gospel of Luke that Mary and Joseph are originally from Nazareth. Right? But we have also learned that Bethlehem was Joseph's ancestral home. So it's no surprise when they return, they head there first. Maybe they liked living in Bethlehem. They want to settle back there. But when they learn that Archelaus, who was an even worse leader than his father, more ruthless, more horrible, that he was reigning over that territory, 
Joseph knows it wasn't going to be safe to stay there long. Archelaus was so bad, he was killed by the Romans after six years. So for the fourth time, the fourth time, Joseph is warned in a dream. And for the fourth time, he obeys. They head north to Nazareth in the region of Galilee. It was a long roundabout journey for the couple who started in Nazareth to end up back home, but they finally do, and they were able to live in peace. By all accounts, Jesus had a normal childhood after this. I want you to notice Joseph. From the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, he is faithful time and time again. You see how ready he is to follow God wherever he leads? When he's given information in a dream that would threaten his family, he doesn't sleep in. He doesn't waste time. He he leaps out of bed and immediately does what the Lord wants him to do. When he's told that it's time to head back to Israel, he listens. Herod died in 4 AD, which means that they were probably in Alexandria for the better part of two years, if not longer. That's a long time to set up a life to gather clients, to make a living. But Joseph drops all of his carpentry projects he probably has. He picks up his family and does exactly what God tells him to do. And even though they want to go back to their last home, Bethlehem, a place they probably missed, where they lived also for two years and probably gathered community, Joseph is once again willing to follow the leading of the Lord when the angel tells them to head north. They go back home And they haven't lived there in over four years. Joseph Joseph ultimately is a testimony to quick but normal faith. Joseph doesn't perform any miracles. Joseph doesn't lead any armies. Joseph doesn't write any big books that we have. He's just a faithful man. And he's a good husband. And like we saw a few weeks ago when we studied Matthew chapter 1, Joseph's a man worth imitating. We should be quick to act in faith. Not sleeping in, but leaping out of bed. We should be eager to follow the Lord, knowing that the Lord's plan is greater than our desires. We should love our families with the eagerness that Joseph has. So let's pray that the Lord would make us a people, a church here of normal, everyday, consistent, and eager faith. Amen? That's the story at face value. That's the immediate story. God takes this young family out of harm's way and delivers them back to their home safely. And it's God's doing. He's in control of it all. He is faithful and he is good. There's a lot to be learned there, right? You could study each character involved and about what they do. But I'm sure you've noticed the rich symbolism throughout these scriptures that we have to spend a lot of time investigating. So second, the bigger story. Matthew includes three prophecies in this story that are fulfilled as it progresses. And so he builds for us a meta-narrative, or a story about a story, a bigger story 
if you will. And in this bigger story, Jesus is the great fulfiller. And when taken as a whole, the story teaches us three things about Jesus. First, Jesus is the new Israel. As we touched on last week, Jesus' infant narrative is a recapitulation or a retelling of the story of Israel. And by retelling the story of Israel, through the story of the infant Christ, Matthew is telling us that Jesus is identified with Israel as a nation and as a chosen people. Matthew quotes Hosea 11.1 in verse 15, out of Egypt I call my son. Now this section of Hosea is not prophecy in the way that we typically understand prophecy. So, we are going to wade into the deep waters of biblical interpretation for a couple minutes. Are you willing to go there with me? Hopefully, hopefully through this, we will learn more about how to understand the Bible as we read it individually. Amen? So let's try. Gear in. Here we go. When we think about prophecy, prophecy we usually think about foretold events. Right? I might prophesy that uh, the Buccaneers will beat the Falcons today. And only the future will tell if that's true. We would know that it's prophecy because I am completely illiterate when it comes to football. So there's no reason I should have that knowledge. It's not a good guess or based on science or evidence. It would just be a, a guess. And we would know that I'm a true prophet only if the Buccaneers actually win. But that's only one mode of prophecy in the Bible. Those prophecies absolutely do exist, the foretelling of future events. Um, but it's not the most common, not the most common by far. Perhaps the most common form of prophecy is truth-telling prophecy. If you read the major prophets like Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, most of their time is spent telling the powers that be what God wants for them in the moment. It's the revelation of God's word in the moment. Truth-telling. So if you read the book of Habakkuk, while it includes future events, Habakkuk, a book of prophecy, is all about suffering and how Habakkuk is dealing with the idea that Israel is going to be punished by an even worse nation. It's him talking back and forth to God for our benefit. And that's prophecy. It's truth-telling. In, in other words, prophecy is saying God's word to a group of people expecting a response. That's the most common form of prophecy. Let me say that again, if you're a note-taker. Prophecy is saying God's word to a group of people expecting a response. So, what I'm doing right now is prophecy in that sense. But there's a third kind of prophecy, and it's called typology. Stay with me here. We might say David is a type of Christ, King David. You'll recall his story, David and Goliath, that guy. He is a type of Christ in that he is a king who leads the people of God to right worship. We might say Moses is a type of Christ because he leads the people out of slavery and bondage. 
Or as with the case of the mothers who mourn the death of their children in our text today, they are a type of Rachel from Jeremiah 31. God has set up in the scriptures these common motifs or models that are constantly being fulfilled through different characters, okay, like salvation or kingship or temple or presence. And eventually he sends the one who is the greatest example of these, the archetype, the ultimate type. These types or models must have their greatest fulfillment in the Messiah. Indeed, they do in Jesus Christ. So here in verse 15, Matthew is quoting a piece of scripture spoken by a prophet, but the words originally in Hosea 11, 1, are not a foretelling of future events. In fact, it's a retelling of an old story, a rehashing of a type. God called his people out of Egypt. That's what Hosea is saying. And in the same way, God called Jesus out of Egypt. Jesus fulfills this type, this model. In this case, the type is the people of God, Israel. The people of God are called out of Egypt. What does this mean? What does it mean for Jesus to fulfill the type of the people of God? Those who wish to be a part of the people of God first need to be in Christ. If you have any hope of belonging to the community of God, you must belong to Christ. Paul picks up this idea in his letter when he, when he says that the church is the body of Christ. We discovered this idea in 1 John, right? We abide in each other by abiding in Christ. The new community of God, which we call the church, is founded upon the person and work of Jesus. He is the sole basis of our union together. When Jesus fulfills this model that's seen here in verse 15, Matthew is saying that something brand new is happening. Like Israel, Jesus is called into the promised land of Egypt. It's a story retold, rehashed, recapitulated. And now, now, only in Jesus can communion with God be found. That's incredibly significant. Any attempt to come to God apart from Jesus Christ can't happen. Jesus is not only the leader of a new Israel, he is the community itself. Our relationship, the basis of our practical relationship this morning, is on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? That's a good thing. And if you want to belong to the actual family of God, if you want your name to be written in the Lamb's book of life, you have to be in Christ. You have to have union with him by the Spirit. You can't belong genetically to a people group, an, an ethnographic religion like Israel. You have to be united by faith to Jesus through the gospel. Do you see? So when Matthew says that 
out of Egypt I have called my son, that scripture has been fulfilled by Jesus. He is saying, Israel, Israel itself is retold, changed, transformed into the person of Jesus who represents it. And now we belong to each other as we belong to him. Praise the Lord. That's good. Amen? Second, Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is identified with Israel itself, and he is identified with the greatest leader of Israel, Moses. Uh, maybe, there's a, maybe there's a debate to be had there between Moses and David. I'm going with Moses. So much of this story happens to Moses. So much of verses 13 through 23 actually happens to him. Moses is called to go to Egypt. Moses is called to come out of Egypt. His mother saves him from a tyrant. His people experience crazy oppression from the hands of that same tyrant. And he is told to go to a place he has never been. We're supposed to see clear echoes of the story of Moses here. Why? Why is Matthew doing this? Let's go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 21. Go there with me. It says this. This is the angel of the Lord speaking to Joseph in a dream. She will bear a son, that's Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And here we have another type. Jesus is the Savior. Now, when Israel looked back on their history and they saw Moses, they immediately associated him with salvation. We would even say that Moses is a type of Savior. He was the one that God used to lead his people out of slavery and bondage. He saved them from Egypt through the power of God. And now Matthew is saying that Jesus is the greater Moses. Moses led the people out of physical bondage and slavery. Jesus leads his people out of spiritual bondage and slavery. Moses saved from the oppression of a tyrant. Jesus saves from the oppression of Satan himself. But Moses was more than just a savior to the people of Israel. Moses was also a law giver. And Jesus was, would give his people a new law and a new way to live. He would open up the people of God to include all who call upon his name by faith. Moses was also the mediator of a covenant between God and the nation of Israel. This covenant told Israel how they could maintain the presence of God among them by following certain ceremonial, civil, and moral laws. That's the purpose of the law, by the way. Not to save, not to forgive sins. The purpose of the law was to maintain God's presence among the people of Israel. Read the book of Hebrews for more on that. And could they do it? No. God knew they would not be able to do it. But he gave them a law so that they could display the immeasurable riches of his grace in Christ who would come. And Jesus didn't come to add to the law. He came to fulfill the law. He is Emmanuel, God with us. His presence would be maintained in us, not by works done of the law, but through his death on the cross, a sacrifice once and for all. 
He would be the mediator of a new covenant that would replace the old covenant, one that was made by his blood. Praise the Lord. This morning, we take communion together. We celebrate that new covenant made by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the greater Moses. Third, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus would be despised. Maybe the most confusing verse of this whole section of Matthew 2 is the very last verse, verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now you could hunt down this phrase through, through all of the Old Testament, and you would never find a prophecy about how the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. Many attempts have been made to understand Matthew here. Some point out that the root of the word Nazareth is, in the Hebrew is a word that means branch. So maybe Matthew has in mind the prophecy of Isaiah 11.1 1 about the branch from the stump of Jesse. Maybe. But when Matthew quotes Isaiah anywhere else in, in his book, he usually calls him by name or uses the term the prophet. And here he refers to the prophets generally. So I'm unconvinced. Some say that it's an allusion to Judges chapter 13, where Samson is said to be a Nazarite, that he was going to be a Nazarite. <clears throat> a Nazarite was a vow that someone took uh, of abstaining from certain things like alcohol and cutting their hair in order to dedicate themselves to the Lord in a special way for service. That was the Nazarite vow. And Jesus was definitely dedicated to the Lord and he served the Lord in a special way. That's true. But <clears throat> Nazarite is a completely different word than this, a Nazarene, completely different. It only uh, associates by sound. And Jesus was definitely not a Nazarite, not in the fullest sense that the scripture dictates. If that was what Matthew meant, then Jesus would have been seen to be breaking the Nazarite vow in chapter 11, where Jesus himself admits to drinking. These are both interesting attempts, but they fall short. A simpler explanation from the culture that Matthew is writing into makes much more sense. So to quote Philip from John chapter 1, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth was a place that wouldn't have even registered on a map. Most tiny towns in rural Iowa, where Ashley and I just moved from, are bigger than Nazareth was. It was obscure, hillbilly, uncouth, which, which means when Matthew says that Jesus fulfills the prophets, plural, teaching that Jesus would be a Nazarene, he means the teaching of the prophets about Jesus being despised. Nazareth was a despised place. To answer Philip's rhetorical question from John chapter 1, no, nothing good usually comes from Nazareth. 
Isaiah 53, verse 3, which we read as part of our scripture preparation this morning, says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. That is Jesus of Nazareth. He was despised. We esteemed him not. Men hid their faces from him in disgust and disdain. That's Jesus of Nazareth. The suffering servant. The one who went to the cross for the people that despised him. Matthew ends the narrative of the birth of Christ with a reminder that even though Jesus was the new Israel, a founder of a new community, the new Moses, a better savior, even though he would save all of humanity through the cross and through his blood and be declared the king of kings, we esteemed him not. We despised him. Praise the Lord that while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. While we despised him, in our despising and hatred, we sent him to a cross for death, which was the very cause of our salvation. We hated him, thought of him as nothing, but he saved us anyway. You might say to yourself, I didn't send Jesus to a cross. Caleb, why do you keep saying we? It was our very sin, our rebellion against God, why Jesus went to that cross. Every single one of us. And because of his death and his resurrection from the grave, we can have communion with God now. Despite our hatred of God, we can belong to this new family, this new communion. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And today we celebrate again communion together, where we proclaim the Lord's death for the forgiveness of sins until he comes. What a joy that we can practice that together. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that today we are reminded that you are the new Israel that in you we belong to a new community, not one founded on uh, belonging genetically to a certain group or certain law, but one founded on faith, faith in your death and resurrection. Thank you that you are a greater Moses, one who is our savior, saves us from ourselves and from our sin. Thank you for that. We lift you up. We praise you. We thank you for your grace. We ask now that as we take the Lord's Supper, we would be ready for it. That we'd understand what we're doing. That we are proclaiming in ourselves, taking in symbolically your, your flesh, becoming more a part of you and a part of one another. In Jesus' name, amen.